Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for our sermon is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 3. We also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Since we know this above all else, no prophecy of scripture ever comes about from someone's own interpretation. In fact, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. There were false prophets also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with fabricated messages. Their condemnation, announced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of our Lord. Our sermon theme for today, as is spelled out in our text, is Scripture is the sole inerrant authority for our faith and, of course, then the works that proceed out of that faith, so for our works. Now, as we discuss that theme, we're really going to answer two questions that that theme brings up in our text. One, how can Scripture be so reliable? And two, how can we keep from being deceived away from those Scriptures? So let's jump into our text and answer those questions. From here on out, I will be preaching on my own translation because there's some things in the vocable meaning of the Greek words and stuff that bring out some imagery and some pictures that we would like to discuss. So to answer the question, as, uh, how can it be so reliable as we discuss Scripture as the sole inerrant authority for our faith and works? And we begin looking at chapter 1, verse 19. And we keep on having as more steadfast the prophetic word to which you continue doing well when you continue holding firmly to it like a light shining in a dismal place until whenever the day may dawn and the morning star may raise up in your hearts. Now, let's stop there. Do you notice my translation was different? In the Greek wording, it's a comparative. We keep on having as more steadfast. More steadfast than what? Than eyewitness accounts. See, Peter himself was an eyewitness to the resurrection, but as we know, just because television, being able to watch court cases, somebody could be an eyewitness to something, but they might have been at a wrong angle and missed something. And somebody could be an eyewitness to something, but they could be mistaken. Their memory could be jarred. So what Peter's saying is we have something that's even more steadfast than even what he himself saw with his own eyes, and it says the prophetic word. Now, in English, prophecy means predicting the future. But in the Bible, prophecy means telling God's will, revealing God's will, whether it's in the past, in the present, or the future, and it can be all three or various measures of those three things all at once. So what we continue having as more steadfast is God's will revealed to us. This is especially his will when it comes to your salvation. And this is why it's so important to know, because your salvation according to scripture, is that God became a man and did all the work to save you. You and I could not do it. We, we just, our sinful nature just was too enslaved. 
And so it's important that we know it was God's will that he did all the work to save you. And he even creates the faith in your heart using that prophetic word. But then you'll notice he says, to which you continue doing well when you continue holding firmly to it like a light shining in a dismal place. The Greek word for that dismal place is a place that not only has no light, but is filthy happening to be in, for example, the New York City sewer and all of a sudden the lights go out and you can't see and you really don't want to be walking around, bumping around in a filthy place like that. So you reach out and open up your cell phone and turn on that light app and you definitely are going to be careful not to drop your cell phone. Now, obviously, your cell phone has a battery that would drain. God's word, it never drains. So we're going to hold on to that like we're in that filthy sewer and this is our, our only protection. That's how scripture sees the world that we are in. We've been duped by the devil's lies and he keeps us in his darkness without the light of Christ. We are walking around in a sewer. But how long should we hold on to that light? Many people say, well, I got this crisis going on into my life and I'm going to come extra to cling to the word, but I'll come to the word now. And then when the crisis is over, they drop the light and go skipping on down the dark sewer. But Peter tells us until whenever the day may dawn and the morning star may rise up in your hearts. Now, morning star being the planet Venus, which is the first star seen, uh, is often used in scripture as a description of Christ's return. But even the daylight dawning, what Peter is telling us is you want to use that light to guide your daily life and to keep you in the forgiveness of sins that it announces to you. You want to use that until either you die and go to heaven or Christ returns, whichever comes first in your particular case, and of course, my particular place. So then he continues in verse 20 saying, primarily knowing this, namely that all prophecy of scripture does not originate by one's own explanation. I often tell my members, don't believe something because Pastor Sherman told you so. Be like the Bereans mentioned in the book of Acts and search the scriptures and see because if I got it wrong, you got to point it out to me so I can have it right. I do have a sinful nature. Peter got it wrong. We're going to get into that here in a minute. And this is why Martin Luther did not like it when people started calling themselves Lutherans. Because Martin Luther did not want it to be their authority. Luther taught this. He always wanted the lay people to be in the scriptures and their authority to be the scripture. Because that was, was God's will. So he continues... For prophecy was never carried along by the will of man, but men spoke from God while they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's really interesting if we were to take a look at uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, all writing uh, the gospel history of Jesus' earthly ministry before he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit used these men of different educational levels. You can tell Luke is a doctor. In fact, when you read like Paul's epistles, you can tell Paul was a rabbi. Matthew was uh, in a little higher position and higher educated. And you can tell John was a fisherman. John uses a lot more analogies and word pictures. So every one of them has their gifts. But if the Holy Spirit wanted them to do something, and especially he would remind them. Remember, we're talking this is, this is more steadfast than human, uh, than human eyewitnesses. He reminded them. And this is how we know the disciples is, uh, didn't get it wrong when they recorded the scriptures. And if the Holy Spirit said, no, that's not how I want that recorder. No, that that's not the thing you need. He would prevent them from doing it, but he used their styles, their words. So they were literally carried along. So the answer to our first part is we discussed the, th the theme. Scripture is the sole inerrant authority for our faith and works. We ask, how can it be so reliable? And those verses make it clear. It's not mere opinions. It's not faulty memories 
But it is the inspired word of God that guides our lives in this dark world of sin. Now we got to get to our second question. How can we keep from being deceived by it? Now, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Yet there even came to be false prophets among the people, as there will be false teachers even among you guys. So in Old Testament Israel, there were false prophets. They deceived people. And there will be false teachers in the New Testament church, as Peter just Peter's prophesying here. He's telling us this is this is just inevitable. We live in a sinful world. And as Jesus told us in our gospel lesson for today, a portion of that Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves by their fruit. You will recognize them. Now, I've seen pastors scream out, unless you give everything you got in your savings account to the Billy Bob Thornton Jones ministry, then you're not doing well. But if you do, then God's going to bless you. And then afterwards, you see them like hop into their private limousine that they own, hop in and drives them to their private jet. And they didn't own these before they, be, they claimed to be teachers. They were making money, uh, lots and lots of money off the gospel. Their fruit shows who their God is, right? So that's what Jesus is pointing out. But I'm going to tell you something. I have never met a wolf in sheep's clothing that will tell you he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And if you listen to him, he will destroy you. In fact, most of the wolves in sheep's clothing I have met actually meant well. An example, when I was studying to be a pastor in in my early years of that, I worked in a machine shop that would hire me on every summer. And there was a brother in Christ whom I truly admired the man. He He came from a system that did not give him anywhere near the training to even work in the languages. But as we were waiting in the morning for the machine shop door to be unlocked, he was be reading his scripture. He read them on his lunch break. On his weekends, on Saturdays, he literally, with his own hands, was building the physical building through which his sheep would meet for worship. He had started that church from scratch. And yet the sad thing is, as much as I admired that brother's zeal, there were things he taught that would be, Christ did all the work for salvation. Oh, but here's a work you've got to do, and there's a work you've got to do. I wish I could meet that brother today because I'm way more equipped to show him there. He did not realize he was actually detracting from Christ's work, and he truly had a zeal there. So we see that we've got to be careful because these wolves in sheep clothing, we can tell by their fruits, but lots of times there really is a well-intentioned behind those fruits. Other times, like the profiteers, that's made very clear. So we're told, yet there even came to be false prophets among the people, as there will be false teachers among you guys. Now, false prophets were people who falsely told the will of God. And sadly, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Take Jeremiah, who was a true prophet from God. God sends him with the message, and if the people would have listened listened to the message and repented, he would have stopped the Babylonians from destroying Jerusalem and the temple. But false prophets came and said, oh no, God's been talking to me, and that's not going to happen. He's going to bless us, and we're going to rise up against them. And the people were duped. Now, don't feel sorry for the people. They wanted to be duped. They let that happen. But those false prophets caused the destruction of Israel. And a prophet tells the will of God. A teacher, now we have the word as we have it today where the will of God has been revealed. Everything you need to know for salvation, who the Savior is and everything. So they just teach it falsely. And verse 1 continues, Who are the kind that will introduce divisive opinions of destruction alongside of Scripture? Two words that were difficult to translate here to bring out their full nuance. The first is, it's their own opinions, and they're divisive, and, and, they, and that 
they make them stand alongside of Scripture, but these opinions are destruct, are, are they destroyed, they'll lead to hell. So they make their own opinion. And a good example of that in Jesus' time would be, for example, the Sadducees, who, well, they, they claimed to be believers and they had the word, but they knew better. What you and I would call science today, what they would call logic and good reason, not only they make it stand beside Scripture, they gave it authority over Scripture. How could God possibly raise the dead? How could God possibly become a human being? Ah, we don't believe that. And another example in Jesus' time is the Pharisees. They took the law and they said, this is also how you're saved. Not by God's grace. By God's grace, he empowers you to keep the laws, what they would say. And then they added, so 600 laws to it. So they had divisive opinions in which you earned your salvation by keeping the law. And they held them right there along to what scripture says, even though that contradicted scripture. And as Christ, after Christ ascended, the apostle Paul has to write, for example, the book of Galatians to people who come along and they say, yeah, Paul is right. You did, Jesus did 98% of the work, but there's 2% you have to do. And only if you're a guy. Christ kept all the ceremonial law, except for some reason he didn't keep one ceremonial law. You have to be circumcised. You have to remove some skin from your, uh, from your member for intimacy, and then you'll be saved. See, they, they, put, they made that stand beside Scripture, even contrary to Scripture. So they, how can we identify the fruits of these wolves in sheep clothing who are not going to tell us they're wolves in sheep clothing? They teach opinions and have them stand beside Scripture. And these opinions are very divisive. It's because of this that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The word of God and the forgiveness it gives, the faith it creates where we have a new man that's literally united to Christ in a way that defies our understanding, so we call it the mysterious union, that should be unifying. But the devil hates it. And any unbeliever is going to despise it and be militant against it. But it often happens, like in Galatians, the book of Galatians, where people come along and they teach opinions that cause those divisions, and we can't succumb to those. Because they're damnable. They'll lead us to our own damnation. It doesn't mean we go out of our way to kill people for it. No, we've got to stand up to it. But they, cause, they teach things that will cause divisions. And those divisions are caused because their opinions are, are they're holding us equal to or often usually above Scripture. So the Scripture is the sole inerrant authority of our faith and works. How can we keep from being deceived away from it? Well, we look at their fruits. And the first fruit that's, that, according to our text, we're going to see is they teach their own opinion and have those opinions stand beside Scripture, if not actually hold them to be authoritative above Scripture. Now, as I've said, sometimes, and I've mentioned a man who I actually admired as a brother in Christ in his zeal, sometimes Christians don't even mean to do this, and sometimes it's not even the words that we say that are teaching these, it's our actions. And a great example of that is recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Cephas is the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. For before some people came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when those people came, he drew back and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision group and the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, if you a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? 
Paul was able to recognize it's not what Peter was teaching, it's what his actions were teaching. They were teaching how the ceremonial laws, of dietary laws, still apply. Christ hasn't done all the work to save you. His actions were teaching that, and Paul called him out. But you know what made Peter not be a wolf in sheep's clothing? When Paul pointed it out to him, Peter fixed it. He stopped. He corrected his actions and abandoned his divisive opinions. So we will see one of the fruits is they teach opinions and have them stand beside Scripture. Opinions that are not in the Scripture, that are additional to or contrary to the Scriptures. Now our text continues if we look at chapter 2 verse 1. It says, Yet there even came to be false prophets among the people, as there will be false teachers even among you guys, who are the kind that will introduce divisive opinions of destruction alongside of Scripture. By the way, the word for divisive opinions is where we get our English word heresies. He continues uh, with the result of this. And so they are even denying the master who bought them with the result that they are bringing upon themselves eminent destruction. See, when they hold those opinions as equal to Scripture even above, the result of that is, if I say, yeah, Jesus did 99.99% of the work for your salvation, but there's just 0.01% that you have to do, I have robbed you of your salvation. If you think you are saved because of that 0.01%, mm, I threw an extra buck in the offering plate this week, woohoo, I'm saved. They're robbing you of the master. The word he uses for Christ is literally, Christ bought the world away from our sin with his life on the cross. Now he owns us. Now when one human being owns another, we call them a slave, right? But when you have faith, if you don't have faith, you're rejecting this and you're rejecting Christ taking the punishment for you. But when you have faith, you're not a slave to God. You're God's child and you want to live according to his will. But because they're teaching salvation, even in just 1% or whether it's 50% or 99%, you're doing the work, they're taking it out of Christ's hands. They're robbing that from you. They're robbing the master of what he owns, what justifiably what he bought in love. And so one of the fruits we can tell is their teachings will deny the work of Christ. It's just a matter of to what amount. Do they deny it to 0.01% or do they deny it to 70%? They will always deny the work of Christ, putting some of that work in various amounts into your hands. So in chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Peter continues, And many will follow after their excesses. On account of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I struggled how to translate the Greek word that I translate as excesses, because it's really your own desires with no restraint. God's word tells me not to do this, but I really want to do it. So the perfect example of this is a guy in, in, in the Corinthian congregation. He's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, wait a minute, Christ kept the law for me, so the law no longer damns me. Christ will forgive me, therefore I have freedom. And he's running around town bragging, I'm having sexual intercourse with my stepmother. Yes, isn't that awesome? Because God forgives me, I'm free. Christ kept the law for you. He fulfilled the ceremonial law especially but the moral law, which we call the Ten Commandments, it still applies to you, not as a means of salvation. It's still God's will. God is still holy. And this man was using the forgiveness he had won as an excuse to sin. And we see Christians doing this in this day as our society is embracing some sins that Scripture may clear our sins, just as you and I have sins we struggle with. But they embrace them and say, well, God won't condemn you because God is love. 
As if God's love trumps holiness. It doesn't. Christ made the two fit on the cross. And so we see that, that that they'll they'll say, but this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. And and Paul mentions, he says, when he talks about that brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, even the pagans know better than this. Well, that's what Peter says. He says, on account of them, the way of truth will be blasphemy. To blasphemy the way the truth is to abusively speak about it. Look at those Christians. They claim that God loves them and they're so holy. And look at how they turn around and use that as an excuse to do disgusting things. This is the way of truth. We can use the good news of salvation in Christ as an excuse to totally ignore the law. It no longer applies as a means of salvation. It never really did apply as a means of salvation. But it doesn't mean that God's holiness doesn't still stand. But we can go the other way too. We can add laws. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the the Christians were doing to the people of Galatia, telling them you got to be circumcised. And that's what Paul or Peter's actions were doing when he said, "Well, you got to follow the ceremonial dietary laws." In which case, then what often happens is you get Christians. We call them the holier than thou Christians. And then one of those holier than thou Christians get caught in an, in some kind of a of a of a scandal. <laughs> that guy was always screaming about sexual sins, and then he committed adultery on his wife. And what happened? The unbelieving world says, look at what, look at how bad those Christians are. So another fruit by which we can recognize them is that their teachings will either deny portions of the law or they will deny portions of the gospel. The good news that Christ has done all the work to save you. Now, another thing we want to look at is recorded in verse three. And in greed, recognize it's greed. There's, there's a desire for something else for their own, he says. And in greed, they will make a profit for themselves off of you guys, using fabricated words. Struggled how to translate that word. It's a word for doing business. It's, it's, it's the middle uh, voice. And so it means they're doing business for their own profit. So most translations rightfully say they will profit off you guys. They'll take advantage off of you guys. And I already mentioned uh, people who claim to be teachers of the word and they're using it to get rich. There's something wrong there. But it's not just a word for making prophecy, profit in the, financially in the context of scriptures. Because there's other things we can be greedy about, isn't there? Not just financial gain. Sometimes it's prestige. Look at me. I'm the pastor of this large group of followers. I'm teaching contrary against the word of God. I'm giving itching ears what I want to hear. But look at the numbers. And sometimes it's power. And you can follow the rise of scripture. They, it started out that you, the apostles had the word of God. And so if something, they, they were the eyewitnesses, but they, God, God had the word written so we could compare it. But there came to be in, in congregations, overseers, bishops, if you will, who their idea was to make sure what was being taught was in accord with the word of God. But eventually, it just came to be that it was their power. And eventually one bishop rises to become the Antichrist and he's identified and he's dealt a, a, a fatal blow in the Reformation. This is why I say you don't trust something because I say so or Luther says so. You trust something because Scripture says so. And the prophet they gain is having power over you. I said so and you'd better obey. This, this becomes like cult leaders where they're taking advantage of people, right? But you know, even in Lutheranism where we struggle to let Scripture speak for itself, you can see a prophet that people see, seek when it's just zeal to defend the word and overriding zeal to actually get the reputation of being a great defender of the faith. 
on par with Luther himself or something. And lots of times these people will then put up a bunch of rules like the Pharisees did to protect the word of God so that they can have that. In every case, there's a greed in their hearts and it's just what are they going after? And those end up being fabricated words, and we see that in Lutheranism when they just start quoting their favorite theologian who was quoting his favorite theologian who was quoting his favorite, never mind about Scripture, right? We want to be Bereans. So uh, again, as we ask that question, Scripture is the sole inerrant authority for the faith and works. Uh, how can we keep, on, keep from being deceived away from that Scripture? Another fruit that they have that we can use to identify them is they teach for their own benefit and not for God's glory. Now, it's not God's ego. God is glorified when you and I are brought into forgiveness and hence salvation and made his children. So they're teaching for something to benefit uh, above and beyond that. And so we've actually answered our question now. We've, we've asked that. Uh, Scripture is the sole inerrant authority for, the faith, for our faith and works. How can it be so reliable? It's the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit carried those men along. Um, how can we keep from being deceived away from it? We can recognize their fruits. They teach opinions and have them stand beside scriptures. Their teachings will deny the work of Christ in various amounts. It's not a matter whether they deny the work of Christ. It's a matter to what a degree they do, and it's all wrong. Their teachings will either deny portions of the law or portions of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. They teach for their own benefit and not for the glory of God. And with that, doesn't that scare you? You go, how can God let them get away with this? But the last half of verse 3 spells that out. It says, the judgment against them from a long time ago is not dawdling and their destruction is not dozing off. They seem to be getting away from it, getting away with it. But God says, uh -uh. I have a plan. I'm in control. So if you're worried about how you can be deceived away from this, let me conclude today's sermons by reminding you, God's word is your defense and offense. It was with Peter. It gave Peter forgiveness when he denied the Lord. It gave Peter forgiveness when he found out his actions were teaching contrary. And he used the word of God to correct others when they were wrong. And it is for you. So let me wrap this up by reading to you 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, the first half of our sermon today sermon text. And we keep on having as more steadfast the prophetic word to which you continue doing well when you continue holding firmly to it like a light shining in a dismal place until whenever the day may dawn and the morning star may rise up in your hearts, primarily knowing this, namely that all prophecy of scripture does not originate by one's own explanation. For prophecy was never carried along by the will of man, but men spoke from God while they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen.